0: Okay, hello, welcome everybody to this session on measuring good better. I hope you're having a great conference so far. We've got a great lineup of speakers to start off this session. So the way this is going to work is each organization will give a five-minute lightning talk, just giving a brief summary of how they think about measuring good and impact. And after that, we'll then move into discussion around the tables. So each table will have an organization representative on it. Um, And we'll probably chat for like 20 minutes and then I'll give you a chance if you want to switch and go to a different organization's table, you can do that for the, the second lot of 20 minutes. So, yes, three part session, the talks, first discussion and second discussion. And so I'm going to start off by handing over to Olivia Larson, who is a philanthropy advisor at GiveWell.
1: Thanks, everyone, for coming and for having me to talk a little bit about how GiveWell thinks about measuring good outcomes. And we do this with a process called Moral Weights. And... The one question that might come to mind is why do we need these moral weights? Why do we need to measure this good? And that's because when GiveWell has charities that do different things. So some charities increase consumption and income. Other charities save the lives of children under five. Other charities save the lives of people over the age of five. And in order to do what GiveWell wants to do, which is create a prioritized list of all of the giving opportunities that we see in order from most to least cost effective. And then use the funds we have available to fill it starting with most cost effective until we run out of money. We need to be able to have some sort of way to do an exchange rate between different types of good outcomes. And that's why we use moral weights. It's an input into our cost effectiveness analysis. The next question that might come up is what are GiveWell's specific moral weights? And so on the next slide, I'll have some pretty specific numbers about what GiveWell values different outcomes at. But the specific numbers don't mean that we feel totally confident about each number or that we have the right answer. We need a specific number to put into our cost-effectiveness analysis, but that definitely doesn't mean that we have a high level of precision or confidence in these. So here are some moral weights. These are all in units of the moral value of of doubling consumption for one person for one year. So when we see that the value of preventing an under five death from malaria is about 117, that means that we think that it's about 117 times more valuable to save this life than it would be to double someone's consumption for a year. Um, or if we were given the choice between doubling the consumption of 118 people or preventing one under five death from malaria, we would choose the 118 people, But If it was 116, we would choose the life saved. Uh, One question that comes up sometimes is why would we have different values for an under-5 death from malaria and an under-5 death from vitamin A supplementation? This is just because the average age of someone dying from vitamin A deficiency versus malaria is different. So it really reflects differences in ages. We also want to have a curve for the differences in the moral value of deaths at different ages. So this font might be a little bit small, but you can see that it starts uh, with before you're born and ends at about 80 years old, and the curve is shaped like that. I'm in the uh, 25 to 29 bucket, so I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm past my uh, moral weightiest, uh, according to GiveWell. (laughs) And so another question that might come to mind is what goes into GiveWell's moral weights? How do we come up with these really specific numbers that we think are valuable, but as I mentioned before, don't think are as precise as the numbers might suggest. And we do this in a few different ways. About 60% of the input comes from a donor survey. So in twenty. 19 or 2020, I don't remember which one, we did a survey of about 80 GiveWell donors to ask them how they would make these same types of trade-offs. The benefits of this survey were that we were able to ask pretty granular questions that lets us get to a curve like the one I showed before about ages and that we think GiveWell donors are engaged in this question, they are the users of GiveWell's research, so we do want to take into account what they think. But some of the downsides of this are that it's not the most diverse sample um, and they're not necessarily, they might not necessarily have complete knowledge or much context-specific knowledge about the places that we're we're trying to help. 30% of the moral weights comes from a survey that GiveWell funded uh, ID Insight to conduct that we got the results back from in 2019. This survey asked about 2,000 people living in Kenya and Ghana who are extremely poor, how they would make these same types of trade-offs. It's an important indicator into our moral weights, but it's not as big as your intuition might think it should be. And this is because there were a few issues with the survey. One is that we think that the questions may have been a little bit complicated and challenging, so um, they might not have been fully understood. And also because some of the results that we that we got suggested very high values for saving lives, around over $10 million, which is, and $10 million is where we stopped asking. So this suggests that, um, This suggests that some people might not be willing to make any trade-offs between the value of increasing income versus saving lives, and that's something that we're not really able to put into a cost-effectiveness analysis, but this did... But this did suggest this did change our moral weights a lot and move it much toward the direction of valuing the lives of children under five. And the final portion of our moral weights was a proxy for uh, GiveWell staff opinions, which is something that we used to use more heavily, but we've since downweighted to about ten percent. The benefits of this is that GiveWell staff think about this a lot, and the costs are is that it isn't that many of us and we don't have a ton of context specific knowledge and um it was very variable based on changes in staff composition okay so i'll pass it on to i think jason
2: hey everyone how's everyone doing good good all right awesome me too uh thanks barry where's barry There's Barry. Thanks, Barry, for organizing this. Really happy to be here. I'm going to keep this brief because I'm most excited about the discussion portion of the discussion session. Um, But I do want to tell you a little bit about how OpenPhil thinks about some of these issues Uh, At the outset, I should say that OpenFilm is a somewhat siloed organization, so I'm going to be telling you about the global health and well-being side of the organization, so what you hear is not applicable to the long termist side of the organization, which has a different framework, and it's only somewhat applicable to what happens on the farmed animal welfare team. Okay, so why do we need any assumptions at all? Well, the problem is that we compare um, a really wide array of different types of interventions that we might Like there's a huge diversity of grant making opportunities out there. So everything from, you know, improving global health R&D in order to like accelerate uh, vaccines to like reducing air pollution in South Asia. Um, So what do we do? Well, we try to reduce everything to common units. And by doing that, we can more effectively compare across these different types of opportunities. Okay. So this is really, really hard. Like, I can't emphasize enough how difficult this is. Um, And we definitely don't endorse all of the assumptions that we make. They're a simplifying tool. They're a model. All models are wrong, uh, but some are useful is like uh, a phrase you might have heard. Um, and they are continually being improved, including hopefully by some people in this room. So right now we're running uh, what we're calling a Cause Exploration Prize Contest. Uh, so if you're interested in like, contributing your own research or your own ideas to these sorts of um, questions, go to causeexplorationprizes.com. That's literally the website. Uh, we just extended the deadline uh, to August 11th, and we would love to hear uh, your ideas for how we can measure good better. All right, but I'm going to tell you what we currently do. So, um, first, let's define some units. Okay, so OpenFill currently is using a log utility model of well being. Okay, so you can see uh, this nice graph here, uh, which has a really nice feature, which is that roughly um, increasing someone's income by 1% has the same value in our terms, no matter whether their income is $500,000 or 500 dollars So we can say that one unit of uh, philanthropic impact, or what we sometimes call open Phil dollars, uh, is giving a single dollar to someone who makes fifty thousand dollars a year. So when we set this as like the arbitrary unit, and like let me emphasize, this is just arbitrary, um, the per capita income in the U.S. was something like fifty grand. So you can think of this like, what's the simplest, easiest thing that Open fill could do? Well, it could like you know take all of our money and just stand on the street corner and just like hand out dollar bills to Americans. Um, So when we say that $1 uh, to someone who's making $50,000 counts as $1 philanthropic impact, that defines our units, and then we can say multipliers on that unit. So if someone gets a dollar who's only making $500 a year rather than $50,000 a year, that's worth a lot more in our units. And then ultimately what we're going to do is have a bar for our um, grant making that we want new opportunities to clear. Um, okay, so what we do when we measure good at OpenFill is try to cash out improvements in people's lives on the basis of changes in health and income. And um, we recognize that these are imperfect proxies and that there are lots of ways in which someone's life can go better or worse that aren't going to be fully captured by changes in health and income. But at least currently we think that uh, these proxies work, work pretty well. Um, So, we can value health outcomes now using some of the terminology we've defined. So, um, many of you are, Barry's giving me the one-minute signal, are familiar with disability-adjusted life years, which are um, this nice unit of comparing um, both years of life lost and years lived with disability. Um, And we, in our current valuation, say that averting a single disability-adjusted life year is worth... 100,000 open fill dollars or $100,000 in philanthropic impact. Now, if you're like an open fill watcher, you might have noticed that we recently doubled this value. Uh, we used to value it at 50,000. Now we value health incomes even more. Okay, so this gives us, uh, in combination, a unified framework that lets us trade off health and income. There's so much more to say about this topic. I only had five minutes, but I'm really looking forward to talking more at the table. So please stop by. And now, I actually don't know. Here, I'll find out. I'm going to hand it over to Michael.
3: Right, uh, hello, everyone. So um, uh, I'm going to whiz through these. Um, so this is from familiar setup. We, we have these. This is a familiar setup, so we're trying to compare different sorts of things. So, what, what sort of, uh, you know, you've heard this twice already. So, we need some kind of common way of doing this, okay? So, like, what, what in the end is, uh, uh, how should we think about se- comparing these in a sensible way? Um, so Jason already mentioned the kind of the quality approach, so this way of doing kind of health to um, trading off quantity and quality of health. Uh, but we think a better approach is to focus on well-being. So we take it that, OK, we're interested in doing good. What do we mean by good? We probably mean well-being. What do we mean by well-being? Probably how happy and satisfied people are with their lives. That seems like, in the end, probably the thing we really care about. And so we should focus on, on doing that um, and these sort of these these proxies. So health and income, you know, let's just focus on the thing which in the end matters. How are we going to trade off health? income well let's trade them off in terms of their impact on on people's well-being um so let's go kind of straight to the source so how do you do this you can measure it with surveys you can ask people questions like zero to ten how satisfied are you with your life so this is just a frequency distribution so you know you ask this in the uk most people say they are seven out of ten um and there are other kind of versions of this question. So we sort of qualies and dallies, We think in terms of wellbees. So well-being, uh, well-being, life years. If you think wellbees sound silly, they they were nearly called wallies, as in. Yeah. Anyway, so so wellbees and um, so so what is it? What is one wellbe? So you've got your zero to ten life satisfaction scale. So a one point increase for one year is one wellbe. Okay. So that's that's good. And the point is that all these different things happen in your life, and then you say how you feel, and then we can work out what actually affects your life as you live it. Uh, And the problem with with kind of relying on donor preferences or or people's hypothetical preferences is that um, these are people's guesses about what they think might matter rather than relying on people's actual experience as they they live their lives. Um, I'm sort of going to skip over this. Uh, It turns out that um, if you want to know how happy people are, asking them how happy they are is a good way of finding out how happy they are. So these are sort of well-validated measures, uh, it turns out that it's it's pretty sensible, and you get the correlations in the directions you expect with health, income, what your friends say, um, and so on. Um, this is kind of a map of of life satisfaction, different bits of the world. So it has sort of a, this uh, sort of familiar picture of countries to more to less developed. So it seems like there's some sort of sort of approximately like a unified scale going on. Uh, happiness research really started in uh, only after the Second World War. It's been really picking up, uh, and now people know. For instance, that the Scandinavian countries are the happiest in the world. But this, this sort of this well-being, um, this World Happiness Report has only been going for ten years, so this is this is new. Uh, and um, our approach is to say, well, look, we, we think this is important, but let's not just um, you know, measure well-being at a national level. Let's actually work out the most cost-effective ways to improve well-being. So we are the pioneering well-being cost-effectiveness. Um, I'm going to skip over this. Um, Okay, so does this matter? Okay, or are we just sort of arguing about, about metrics? Uh, well, one thing you could do is you could uh, compare providing cash transfers in low-income countries, which is a, a, an EA fave, to something like um, treating people who are depressed with group therapy, which is not an EA fave. Um, and notice if you were comparing, this wouldn't really make sense to compare this in terms of income. That's not the value of being, you know, having your depression alleviated. You could measure it in terms of health, but that's not really the value of having your poverty alleviated. Ah, but if you do measure it in terms of people's well-being, you can compare it Indirectly, in terms of the units which matter, so it doesn't make a difference. Uh, so we did a couple of meta-analyses. This is a this is a picture to indicate that this is how meta-analyses work. You look at you know look at vari- the effects from various studies. So this is just just trying to show you that we actually did some real research here. Um, uh, so the, these these are sort of this is the effects over time. So um, what we found is that the uh, the therapy has this, sort of a big effect initially, and then it trails off faster. And the cash transfers have a small effect. So this is a, a a thousand dollar cash transfer this can be this is sort of a, a give directly start lump sum this is more than uh, uh that's this is sort of more than a year's household income so this is this is big so uh so the the group therapy to the depressed or the cash transfers to the people who are, who are very poor these have you know sort of the same size effects uh the the, the therapy is slightly bigger um But really, what drives the difference is that um giving people money is expensive. The more money, you, you know, the richer you want to get, the more money you need to give them. So, a thousand dollar cash transfer is going to be a bit more than a thousand dollars to deliver. Uh, the therapy provided, group therapy provided by an organisation like Strong Minds, that's about one hundred and thirty dollars per person. uh And then what we have here is some dots. So we we to account for uncertainty we had um, uh, we had some simulations, so these aren 't just dots, these are fancy dots mm-hmm. and um, and so you can see on the x axis this is the cost to do the treatment, and then that 's the well being effect and so we um, uh, Barry's, wave, Barry's telling me to finish up. Anyway, this um, so we did this and we find um, that the providing the therapy is 10 times more cost effective than cash transfers, Ooh, um, which um, people, so I speak to people about this and some people tell me I'm mad, mostly those people are economists, they just think this is absolutely nonsense and then some people say, well, of course, if you want to alleviate misery, you've got to focus on what's going on inside people's heads. Anyway, so we think this, uh, this shows that it matters and that we should be taking a well-being lens that really... this does give us a new approach. Uh, So we want to look at some other stuff. Here's some stuff we want to look at. Uh, Here's some other stuff we want to look at. So we want to start at the micro, move to kind of bigger scale. uh, And then it turns out that when you're trying to do something new, you run into problems. So we're sort of pioneering this well-being approach. And there's these various open methodological questions to get stuck into, like comparing life to death. And um, uh, is my 7 out of 10 really the same as your 7 out of 10? uh, And these sorts of things. So um, uh, that's what we're about. Um, Thanks. And now I'm handing over to the inestimable Matt, Matt Lerner Founders Pledge.
4: Thank you. You'll be asked to vote afterwards on which organization has the best approach. <laughs> um, unfortunately, my slides have no pictures because I'm treating you all like adults. And, uh, and I'm lazy. Um, this is going to be a little bit parasitic on the pre- previous uh, presentation. So our benchmark, like everybody else's, is cash. Things need to be at least as good as cash. And historically, we valued cash at 199 a at WellBe. And I say historically because this presentation is mostly about our new approach, which we're working on right now. What we used to do is put everything in WellBe's, convert to Dally's, rely on moral weights that we sort of all voted on, uh, and then apply subjective discounts post-hoc based on charity-specific considerations. If that sounds weird, don't worry, because we're moving to a new approach. Um, new approach, we have... V- uh, list of constraints. So at Founders Pledge, we advise entrepreneurs, founders on how to spend their money, and we also spend some of our own money. So we have a bunch of goals. We need to evaluate many different kinds of interventions. So within global health and well-being, subjective well-being, uh, air pollution, whatever. Um, we need the metrics to work for both in-depth CEAs, which we use to justify recommendations to members, and for back-of-the-envelope calculations for our own rapid grant-making. We need to be flexible enough to deal with subjective well-being type stuff. We need to make the most of existing sources of data, which I'll get into in a second. We want to make as few subjective decisions as possible. Uh, and we want to make sure that we use as much evidence as we can. And finally, we want to appropriately account for uncertainty. Okay. The general idea is we have DALIS, we have well we have income doublings, and those are all noisy measurements of some, like, underlying thing, which is, like, the goodness of an intervention, maybe. Like, how much this does for your life. Um, and we ultimately want to be able to measure an intervention any of these ways. And so, moving forward, our approach is something like well to income to death to dallies to wellbees, um, And that dotted line indicates that we're only going to figure out conversion factors for these three and then back out a dali to well-being conversion. Uh, The way that we are going to do that, starting at the top right, going clockwise, is we are going to rely very heavily on HLI's work. HLI did an excellent meta-analysis, which was very convincing to us, such that there is a stable relationship, we believe, between well-being and income doublings. That's the first leg. The second leg is income to death. So income doublings um, to death. And we have three approaches that we use, which I'll go into in slightly a little bit of detail. So we have OpenFill's approach, we have the ID Insight survey that GiveWell sponsored in 2019, and we have GiveWell from pre-2019. And the rationale there is we basically think that the ID Insight survey represents a sort of preference utilitarian approach. Um, What do you prefer? Uh, We think that uh, OP represents uh, a... Uh, hedonic utilitarian approach relies on some subjective well-being data uh, historically, and we have this GiveWell pre-2019 representing something like an EA community consensus. Um, so before the preference utilitarian data arrives, we look at what GiveWell thought and weight those things equally and try not to insert our own subjective judgments in there. Uh, from death to dallies, that's a sort of simple step. We just want to be able to convert death to dallies in different ages, so we just need different conversions for different age groups. And the final leg is dallies to well um, And this is where we're currently working things out, and I'll go into a little bit of detail. I think I have some time. Um, so how it's looking so far. Right now, for a subset of conditions for which there's both well and dally data, the correlation's decent, 065 um, but if you restrict to physical conditions, you get a really strong correlation, and the reason is uh, mental conditions, anxiety, depression, uh, are big outliers. And we think this is actually totally reasonable. There's lots of research on effective forecasting failures that suggest that people just don't have a really good idea of how they're going to feel when something bad happens to them or when they imagine having depression. And some justification for this is that we think that the disability weight for dental caries, if any of you have ever had a bad cavity, is very low. But if you look at pain data, it suggests it's about as bad as lower back pain. So the global burden of disease has a 0.3 weight, so 30 times as high um, for roughly the same amount of pain. So we basically think is for certain types of condition, disability weights really underrate the subjective experience, and that's why we want to be able to use all of these different metrics. Um, so going forward, we are going to set our benchmark at the WellBe, Daly, income, death, doubling figure. Um, for effect sizes, we will use whatever the most applicable unit is and then translate it to our benchmark and we will still probably have to litigate major disagreements uh, on ad hoc basis when things look really weird which they undoubtedly will Um, and that's it i will turn it over to ipa wherever you are
5: thank you hi everyone i'm katrina i work with innovations for poverty action and We're going to take a little bit of a zoom out approach here. We're the last of the speakers. um, So bear with me for this last five minutes before we go into discussion. So we're going to take this question quite literally. How do you measure good better? And we're going to try to answer this question of, does that mean you need to be looking at these outcomes that we've been looking at today? Well-bees, dallies, qualies, whatever you're looking at. Does measuring good always mean that you need to measure that outcome. So to answer that question, let's first think about what good means. So we could think about this impact to be effect or good, whatever word you want to use. For simplification purposes, let's think of that as a function of two things, the quality of the solution itself, as well as the quality of the implementation of that solution. Today, we've been talking over the last 25 minutes primarily on the quality of the solution. One of the major drivers of if that actually has an effect on something like well-bees is if that solution is, A, the right solution for that context, and B, if it's going to be implemented well and feasibly. So what we want to add to this conversation is that those things are equally important as looking at that final effect. You need to look at these drivers of that as well. So when you're thinking about measuring good better as a, as a goal, you need to think about what is your primary question for a specific intervention. So you might start with asking, okay, how much does this specific intervention, let's say a group therapy program, or maybe something we're all familiar with, like bed nets, how much does that intervention typically increase something like well-bees? In order to answer that question, you have to look at a lot of other questions too. You can see this pile of questions as examples. So for example, you might first want to ask this one on the bottom, is this program really addressing a challenge in that particular context? So you would first look at, okay, in this, let's say you're looking at rolling this out in East Africa. What is the prevalence of malaria in East Africa? What is the current use of bed nets in East Africa? That's what you would want to look at first, rather than just looking at the overall potential for well-bees or qualies, for example. That would not necessarily mean that you want to run what IPA is is more famous for, our organization, randomized control trials. For that kind of question, you wouldn't want to run a randomized control trial yet. You'd first want to look at the basic underlying data for that context. So that's one example. There's a lot of other examples here. We can discuss this in our table afterwards, but for the sake of time, I'll move on. Um, The point is there's a lot of questions that go into the quality of the implementation too. So what does IPA recommend that measuring good means? We frame it as this path to scale. So you would look at a particular intervention and try to identify for the goal that you have and for the context that you're looking at at affecting, where is this intervention on this path? Now what we focused on again today is this kind of prove step in the learning cycle. So looking at actually measuring the final outcomes and what evidence exists there. Or if it's a new intervention, what's our best guess of what that measurement might be? Maybe putting some assumptions like open philanthropy does as well. In addition to doing that, we recommend looking at these other stages. And there are a lot of other ways to measure good, depending on what stage an intervention is in. These are typically underrepresented in a lot of effective altruist organizations and discussions in particular. All of these stages of actually identifying the problems in a particular context, prototyping with users if that's the right solution, moving forward to actually testing out on a small scale, monitoring if that works for, let's say, for bed nets. When you distribute a bed net, does it reach the target audience? If it reaches the target user, let's say children and families, are they actually using that bed net? And these questions, they have to work before you get to, does it actually improve lives saved? Does it actually drive lives saved? So these are important things for the EA community to think about in terms of where might solutions the quality solutions be breaking down in implementation and what can we do as a community to make sure that the highest quality interventions are implemented well and that they're the right solution for a particular context The same applies for the end of this tale here, the adaptation and and the scale. You want to look at if you have something that works already, again, say bed nets or maybe this group therapy program, and you're moving into a new context, what would change in that context based on what you've looked at previously in your theory of change? And how might you need to adapt this in that context and then measure that based on your key questions? So I'll wrap up there, just making the case that Innovations for Poverty Action obviously is a big proponent for using credible evidence, and we generate a lot of that ourselves. But we just want to make the case that that's not always the only thing you should be looking at because it can actually reduce your flexibility in the program adapting if you're looking too rigidly on those final outcomes too early. It's sometimes not the right time to be looking at that. Instead, we want to be looking at innovation and monitoring in specific contexts. Thank you.
0: Yeah, if we could just have one more big round of applause for the five speakers. Thank you all very much.